Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As we turn now to hear from your word, open our hearts and minds and speak to us. Wherever we are, whatever we're going through, the joys and the challenges, the ups and downs, the things that we come in that may distract us, Lord, would you take all of our focus and let your spirit work inside us. Encourage and equip us in all areas of life to live kingdom first. Every day of every week of every year of our lives. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please be seated. About 12 to 13 years ago, I discovered mochas. And when I did, I discovered venti mochas, the largest ones I could possibly get. And since I didn't like coffee at the time, I drank a lot of mochas. Because when you're in ministry, you meet people at coffee shops and you drink whatever's there. And when all you drink are mochas, you drink a lot of mochas. And that happened until one day, I looked at the nutritional information on a mocha. And not just any mocha, a venti mocha. And what I will tell you is the amount of sugar in a venti mocha is the equivalent almost, it's just barely less than two full Hershey bars. I was drinking that three to five times a week. That's not to mention the fat content and everything else that are in these. And I had to figure out something else. But here's what I want to say about Starbucks. They have a great thing going. Hey, let me tell you, when I was a teenager, you would never have seen me in a coffee shop, ever. But just go into any Starbucks in the summer or when kids have a day off, and just look at the number of teenagers that are drinking mochas and frappuccinos and caramel macchiatos and all of these really, really sugary drinks. I mean, a mocha essentially is a really expensive cup of hot cocoa with a shot of espresso in it. But they've got this whole generation who's now coming in to do it. And kids and adults, they're kind of different. I mean, I sort of outgrew those mochas and kept going until now, guess what I drink? I drink an adult beverage. Black coffee. That's it, black coffee. But I mean, kids have particular things they like. Let me tell you what my kids like. Macaroni and cheese. Cheese pizza. Cheese pasta pockets. Cheese. Do you hear a theme? They like cheese. It's like four meals my kids will eat. Cheese. And one other thing, peanut butter and jelly. But you got to cut the crust off. Now, I have nothing against any of those things. I kind of like mac and cheese. I like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, even with the crust cut off. I have nothing against them. But I want to paint this picture for you. I have a favorite steakhouse, Papa Brothers. I would argue they make the best steak. I love Papa Brothers. And I'm imagining going into Papa Brothers and they hand me their menu. 
And I begin going down the menu. And I go, oh, let's see, there's a filet mignon. There's a ribeye, bone-in ribeye, porterhouse. And he comes back and he says, what would you like? I would like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with the crust cut off and a mocha. Throw one of those in. What is wrong with that? There is something being offered you that is so much better than a peanut butter sandwich. Give me a bone-in ribeye and a nice big cabernet to go with that bone-in ribeye. Why would I pick a peanut butter sandwich even if you cut the crust off? That's what I'm going to talk about today. I believe that in the church, too often we are settling for peanut butter sandwiches. And God has something so much more for his people. There's something he's offering. There's an invitation to a life that is so much greater than peanut butter sandwiches. I want to show you a bit of that. Open your Bible, if you would, to Luke chapter 7. This is our gospel reading. And it starts with a picture being painted. I want to paint the picture. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees, Pharisee's a holy man. He's a religious man. He's a pastor. He's well-respected by most of the community. A holy man asked Jesus, that's the hymn there, asked Jesus to eat with him. Typically, that would be a relational thing. And he's asking another holy man, at least that's what some people are saying about him, to come and eat with him. Two holy men sharing a meal. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table. Now, the table would have been short. They would have been leaning over. They would have their feet back. And there would have been a number of them around this table. And by the way, please don't think of like some gigantic restaurant where there's 50 people. And if somebody slips in, nobody would notice. This is not a large room. This is not a large table. There are not a ton of people here. So what happens next is really, really obvious. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, the narrator tells you that, not to say anything bad about her, but so that you understand something. Everybody knows who this woman is. They know her sin. Everybody in this room knows her sin. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, fla alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now, you'll learn later on, and we'll read this, his feet were not washed when he came in. Their feet are gross. I mean, sometimes my boys will go a couple of days without a shower because somehow they slip by and we don't notice. But eventually you notice. There's a stench that comes with not showering. 
They walk around all day in sandals or barefoot in the dirt with dung in the streets, and his feet aren't washed. So here's this woman who is weeping over his feet. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now I want you to think for a moment from the perspective of this woman. Now, number 1, in this culture, women are less than men. In this culture, a woman's value is attached to her husband and to having children, especially a son. And in this culture, prostitution, it's, it's a really, really bad sin. This woman is all three. And when she walks into this room, she knows that everybody else knows who she is and what she does. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you like realize you don't have pants on or something and you're standing in a room of people? How embarrassing that is. Or have you ever have you ever known that like you did something wrong and you're standing in a room and maybe all of a sudden you realize everybody else knows you did something wrong too and they're looking at you? What does it take for this woman to do what she just did? This is either really really courageous or really, really stupid. Because she is absolutely being judged by everybody as she comes in. But there are two different judgments, and this is what we need to see. There are two different judgments. Here's the first. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, now, that gives you a little clue, by the way. This is not just a fellowship meal for the Pharisee. The Pharisee is testing him. The Pharisee has an agenda for inviting Jesus over. And Jesus is failing. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. That's his judgment. She is a sinner. That's what he sees. Now, Jesus has a judgment also, and we're going to jump the text for a moment. Look down at verse 48. This is the judgment of Jesus. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Two different judgments. A single action is taking place. A woman slips into this dinner who shouldn't be there. Everybody knows who she is, what kind of woman she is. She begins to weep at the feet of Jesus. And is making a muddy mess with her tears all over her feet and her own hair. Please don't think elegance. This scene is not elegance. And one of the Pharisees, who's the head Pharisee who's invited Jesus over, is going, that is a sinner there. And by the way, the fact that he isn't doing anything about this says something about him too. And then Jesus looks at the same thing. And he says, you're forgiven. You are forgiven. What is the difference? My whole message is on what makes it different, how this woman was able to do what she was doing, and what is that? Like, what is she doing? Here's how it's defined. Now jump back up. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
He said, say it, teacher. And Jesus gives a little story. Not a complicated story. Everybody will get this. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simple question, right? I mean, put yourself in that position. If you owe a ton of money, somebody else owes a lot less money, you're forgiven both debts, who is more grateful? The one who owed a lot of money. So the Pharisee can get this. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly, which is an interesting word word choice. You've judged rightly. You judged the story rightly. The rest of your judgment is suspect. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? And I'm going to come back to that question. It's a really important question. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave no water for my feet. Now remember, the Pharisee judged the woman a sinner and then judged Jesus because, well, he couldn't possibly be a prophet, a holy man, or whatever, because he's letting this woman do this. Jesus is now flipping it. Jesus judged the woman, too, as forgiven, but he's also judging the Pharisee. And his judgment is not mean, he's not angry, but he says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. That was at least expected. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Normal, standard greeting. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. I'm an honored guest in your home. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. You hold yourself in certain esteem But the sinner that you have judged, she's doing all of the things that you should have done. And then he gives the explanation, and here's the key. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And this is where I need to explain. We need to hear this rightly, because this is the foundation of living kingdom first. Honestly, it is the foundation of the Christian faith. Do not hear this. Because she loved much, I forgave her sins. That's not what he's saying. It is the reverse of that. What Jesus is saying is this. I know what she is doing. I know that she is loving much, but she is doing that because Her sins have been forgiven. Christianity at its core is a response to God, not an initiative for God. Christianity at its very core, living kingdom first, starts with a response to him. Not my initiative, not my willpower, not my checklist, The reason she is able to do what she is doing, which is she walks into this room full of holy men that, by the way, sometimes we have a really bad view of Pharisees as like hypocrites, and they did not. I mean, just picture like a holy guy, somebody you think is a pastor, you're like, that is really a holy guy who loves Jesus and all this, walked into a room with that person knowing her own sin 
And then, seemingly without any embarrassment, embarrassment or fear or shrinking away, she just knelt down and started weeping at his feet and worshiping Jesus. Or, here's how Jesus says it, she was loving him. And she was loving him without fear, without embarrassment. She was loving him without seeking anything. In fact, in the text, she may have been so in love with him that she's not even noticing the people in the room. She just sees Jesus because she is living out of a response. She has accepted, she has been forgiven. And it has given her the power to do far more than she could have ever done on her own. It's not climbing a ladder to get to the forgiveness. It's no, I've done it all for you. And her going, oh my goodness, I know how big my sin is. And you have forgiven all of that? I want to live for you. Christianity is always a response to God not an initiative for God. And when you live out of that response, there is a power that we do not have without it. I want to read you a little story. And you'll all relate to this story. Not necessarily because it's yours, but you'll feel it. You'll get the idea so I read this story about a guy who worked at a pharmacy. And unfortunately, the entire thing was on Twitter in 2017, and so it's all like 120 characters at a time, and I had to paste and copy the entire thing, like 14 different paragraphs. But I got it all on one sheet now. I work at a pharmacy as a tech. Twice and sometimes even three times a week, this old couple picks up their medications. We all know them, they're regulars. The old woman was usually the one who did the transactions and initiated conversations with me and the rest of us. Both of them have been coming for years, so my coworkers really knew them well, but I grew close to them. She's always happy. She's always enjoying conversations, and he would stand by her just looking, paying close attention to the things that she, that she would say. There was never a day they weren't together, and that's why today was odd. Mr. Smith, how are you doing today? I said to him. He told me he could be better, which is his usual reply, so I didn't think anything of it. I told him I had six medications ready for him, three for him, three for his wife, and he stood there quiet. And then he said, my wife passed last night. I'm actually here to return the medications because she wasn't able to use them. Our pharmacy is always busy and loud, but somehow everybody inside the pharmacy heard what he said and just stopped. It was silent, the quietest I could ever remember it being. Everybody's stomach was in a knot, and Mr. Smith just stood there in front of me in tears. Hate to say it, he finally said, but I wish I went before she did. It was hard waking up today to an empty side of the bed. She was my best friend and my lover. At this point, I was holding back tears. I looked around me. Some of my coworkers were already crying. But he said, don't be sad. I promised her I will live. And I will take life seriously 
and I will take my medications. I'll continue my promises for her. She's watching over me, and she's the best angel I could ask for. And before leaving, he left us some advice that I've heard before, but never knew the importance behind it until that moment. See, he said he regretted one thing, which was the last conversation he'd had with her. He wished he would have said, I love you. Anything other than just good night. And he said this, make sure you tell the ones you love that you appreciate them. You never truly know when their last breath is, the last time you will see them. Right now, you all are feeling something. Some of you are in tears. Some of you are recognizing in a little different way, but what he said right there, we've all heard this before, right? But when you stand there and you see it, all of a sudden you have what? A response. And you have a response that gives you a strength, a way of doing things that is different without what just took place. Let me share one other thing with you. Not quite as sad, a little different. When President James Garfield was shot, his two boys, who were eight and 10, they were on a train. They were heading to Mentor, Ohio for the summer. And when he got shot, the news spread like wildfire the country. One of the primary ways it would spread is through railroad, especially a car that's coming from Washington. And as it would hit various stations, it would share what it knew. Newscasters, newscasters, newsboys, I guess there weren't casters yet, would be sharing. But something incredible happened. Everybody who came in contact with these two boys held in what took place. In fact, when they would get into stations, they would hush people, and they would let them know what took place, but in whispers. Everybody came together, all of these strangers. And by the way, when he got shot, it rocked this nation. People were desperate, they were upset, and yet... Around these two little boys, they kept quiet because they didn't want these two little boys to find out their father had been shot while they were alone on a train. A four-hour, excuse me, 400-mile trip. They would get them there. They would put them in a carriage, and they would take them to the family farm before their grandfather would finally share the news with them. But all these people just pulled together. Why? They were responding to something. Here's the thing. Throughout our lives, we all know there are things that happen that we respond to, and it gives us a different viewpoint. It gives us strength. It allows us to do things we may not be able to do otherwise. How much more powerful can it be when we respond to God? At the very heart of Christianity 
It is a response to God, not an initiative for God. But the opposite is also true. So now I want to go to this question. The Pharisee, he says, loves little because he's been forgiven little, which is not necessarily that he didn't have a lot of sin. Every single human being needs a massive amount of forgiveness. Rather, it is what he believed he needed. And because he didn't believe he needed much from God, it impacted his response to God. And so Jesus says this, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? And here is the answer. No. He does not. You know what he sees? Her sin. He does not see her as an image bearer. He does not see the dignity of this woman, though she is sinful. And there's no denying she's sinful. What he sees is her sin. And it makes him judge her. And the reason he sees that is because he views himself so highly. I need so little from God that when I see other people that I think are really bad, I can judge them. But if he understood the depth of his own sinfulness and what it was that Christ accomplished on the cross that he could be forgiven, he might be able to see this woman as a human being, as a daughter of God, as an image bearer, not just a sinner. But he can't. And honestly, he can't even see Jesus for who Jesus is. He judges Jesus because of the way Jesus is accepting this woman. You, sir, are associating with the sinner, so you too must not be worthy. He is also responding to God. It's just his response is not what it should be because his understanding of what God did is not what it should be. And so he misses it. Have you ever missed something? Maybe something even right in front of you. Have you ever missed something really important? So right now I'm kind of fixated around James Garfield because I'm reading this book, so I'm going to share another thing that happened at the same period of time. In 1876 at the World's Fair, there's a man named Alexander Graham Bell who had brought his telephone. His telephone had actually been smashed on the train trip there, and so he had to rebuild it. And if you can still see a picture, it's this little like wooden box with a metal cylinder and some wires coming off it. It looks like nothing, hardly, especially compared to some of the massive machines and other things that were there. And when the judges came to see it, Nobody thought twice about this little contraption. There were people ready just to blow it off. Until one man leaned down and put his ear, and Bell went down where the wires are, took off into another room, and he began to quote, to be or not to be. The, ham, the Hamlet's soliloquy quoted the whole thing. And they heard it in the other room. 
And the guy listening was Dom Pedro II, emperor of Brazil. And he's listening to this, and he suddenly jumps up and goes, I hear, I hear. And he begins running, and the description was he's running very un-emperor-like, back to where Bell is. So excited that this little machine that they almost looked right over because there were so many other things around them that looked so much more impressive. And yet, nothing coming out of the World's Fair that year would rival what happens with the telephone. The way it would explode, the way it would explode in his life. Now, not far away was another man making a presentation, Joseph Lister. And he was making a presentation on antiseptic. And in Europe, they had mostly accepted the practices, but American doctors, they poo-pooed all of it. They were far too prideful to think they needed it. They had all their own ways of doing it. And here is the tragedy. The doctors that were listening to Lister's presentation who could not see what he was doing were the same doctors that treated James Garfield after he was shot. And after his death and the autopsy and where the bullet was lodged, it is very likely if they would have left it all alone, he would have lived. First doctor who shows up takes his unsterilized finger and crams it into the womb and starts looking around for the bullet. Eight other doctors would show up and stick unsterilized instruments into him trying to find the bullet. And they would keep doing it for weeks and weeks until he finally died of sepsis. They missed it. Their pride was so great, they missed it. Guess what? When you respond to God, there is no place for pride. When you respond to God, not initiate, not think how great you are, but recognize what he has done, the response, there is a strength in that that is not there when you are trying to take the initiative. The very core and root of the Christian faith is a response to what God has done. To the point that, and this is where I will end. Look down at the very last verse. Verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How many of you would like peace. Anybody want peace? A few like pathetic head shakes, one hand partway up. Hey, I want peace. I would love to have peace. And can I show you what peace looks like? Jesus shows you peace in this scene. I'm going to put myself in his position for a moment. I'm dealing with embarrassment as this sinful woman comes and does this really awful thing to me. I'm dealing with the fact that all these guys are judging me and like they're pretty important in society 
I'm this, I'm dealing with all kinds. Now, I may not want to. Here's what I want to do. I want to be going, I'm holy. And this, this woman is doing something amazing, and I'm protecting her. And all that. But that's, I would have been thinking, how do I defend myself? How do I make this something it's not? I'd have been getting angry. Why are they judging me? I mean, all of these things would have been going on with me. None of it goes on with him. Notice that he doesn't even defend himself. He only does one thing. He restores the dignity of the sinful woman. You know why? Because Jesus has perfect peace with who he is. He has perfect peace with his relationship to the Father. He lives out of a love from the Father. So he does not have to defend himself. He doesn't have to get angry that this person might be judging him. He is able to go, I don't care. I know who I am in my Father. I have enough peace to be me. And if you want to judge, that's okay. But I'm not going to take your judgment and put it on me. Because I have peace with who I am and who the Father is. And that kind of peace is offered to every follower of Jesus Christ. Instead of living out of fear or anxiety or the, the, the how, what am I going to be judged? What are they going to think? What if I can't do this? What if I fail? Any of you afraid of failure? The things you do sometimes, you don't do them because you're worried about the failure? What if you could have so much peace in God that it no longer bothered you? If I fail, I will fail falling forward. If I love, I will love without fear. I will give everything to Jesus, no matter what they may be judging me for. What if that could be how we lived? All of it is a response to God. And so it starts with us recognizing what he's done and living out of that. How significant it is to embrace God so loved the world that he gave his son that we would have complete forgiveness no matter how bad our sin and that he would invite us to come with him, to live with him, to get all of our value, our identity from him to know that we are perfectly loved so that, by the way, when people judge other people, it is often coming because they don't have their own peace. The reason we judge is because we're afraid. The reason we judge is because we deconstruct people into little parts and then pick on the parts that we don't like. We don't see them for who they really are because we're afraid. Jesus isn't. Jesus can talk to a sinful woman at a well because he's not afraid, because he has peace. You can have that. I can have that. That's what I want for our church, a community of people who live foundationally in the love of God and live out their lives as a response to Jesus in perfect peace. That's what's offered to us. 
you ever come with me to Papa Brothers and you are looking at the menu and you decide to order a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with the crust cut off and I am footing the bill, I will happily let you order that. Because even though it'll probably cost like $13.95 at a steakhouse for that peanut butter sandwich, the steak is going to cost $50 to $75. And so if that's what you want, you can have that. I can tell you what I'm getting, though. I'm getting the steak, even though it's going to cost something. And here's the thing. You want more in your Christian life? You really want to live for the kingdom before everything else? It will cost you something. You're going to have to make some decisions in your life. But you know what? When those you know why I can pay for that steak? Because I've had one before. I know how good that steak is. Now, I wouldn't pay for it every day because I'd go broke, and then we'd lose our house and everything else, and my wife would hate that. Living in a cardboard box is just not worth the steak. However... Just go taste one of those steaks at some point. You will know that now and then, it is worth the cost. Here's what I'm telling you. The peace you see in Jesus, the love that he gives, what he's able to do, that's what's being offered. And what it will cost us, time, commitment to Christ, but it's all coming because of what he's already done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for the life that he shows us is possible. That he can, he can be with people and see them for who they really are. He can have people attack him and yet not get angry. He can show compassion and love and all of it from this place of perfect peace with you. Lord, that's what we want to be. Help us first and foremost to truly embrace the forgiveness that you've given and the love that you have for us, that that can be our foundation. We would believe the king's love so that out of that, we can live the king's will and we can share all the redemption that you have given to us. Lord, let us know your love and peace, and let us be people who share it. In Jesus' name, amen.